For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at BreweryDB.com and GoodBeerMatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. But it really is just giving people structure, giving people a study group. I found those things to be super helpful. So you do then start to link up the flavors with the stories so that hopefully then the ingredients and the flavors that you're expecting make sense. If we can be there and show people that it's possible, then they are keen to engage with us and and follow the paths that we're starting to carve for others who are like us. Despite having only four basic ingredients, there's an incredible diversity and complexity in the liquid in your glass. This complexity becomes less confusing due to a common language that helps differentiate one beer from another. My next guest is an advanced Cicerone author and podcast host, and she's here to discuss beer evolution in 50 styles. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 82 of Good Beer Matters with advanced Cicerone and author Natalia Watson. Continuing on with this uh, theme on beer education, I have uh, the queen of beer styles uh, on the phone with me. And and, uh, and, uh, I didn't realize this. I thought you were an American living in... London or the UK, I'm not exactly sure where you are, but um, but I listened to uh, one of uh, the podcasts where you were the guest and you talked about how you're actually a UK citizen, but um, we'll, we'll dive into that whole story. First of all, uh, let me just uh, greet my next guest, uh, Nat Watson. Thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast. I'm, I'm delighted to finally talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I love that intro. The queen of beer styles. I'll take it. The Thank queen, you. The queen of beer styles. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and with, with the book to prove it. Um, uh, yeah, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to unpack. Um, I am, uh, as anyone who's listened to this podcast and anyone who's listened to your podcast or read anything that you've done, um, you're all about, uh, you, basically, we're, we're, we're kind of like a sister and brother from another mother. Uh, we're, we're really trying to promote beer education, but not just the, hey, here's how to brew. Here's this off flavor and the, you know, um, you know the, the compound that you can't pronounce. It, it's all about kind of putting the whole beer into context and, and why it matters. And, and this is why I really wanted to talk to you. Uh, you put out a book last year on uh, on all the different styles, but you took the approach of not breaking it down like a BJCP uh, line item of flavor and aroma and all that stuff. You kind of broke down to why the style is the way it is and the story that goes behind it. And I absolutely love that. Thank you. Uh, so let's start with... Um, Nat, will you please, uh, you know, please formally introduce yourself and tell us about your background in beer? Sure. So uh, today I introduce myself as a beer educator, author, and podcast host. And I am also the founder of Virtual Beer School. I am a beer sommelier and an advanced Cicerone as well. So I, these days, spend my days really teaching people about beer, which I absolutely love. 
And I, in terms of a bit of my background in beer, I got my start in beer about six years ago now. I moved from New York to London to pursue a career in beer in August of 2015. And I was getting really into beer as a beer geek in a previous career. I was working for an organic baby food company, of all things. So I've made the transition from baby food to beer. And uh, the way I did that actually was sort of starting my Cicerone journey. So I wanted to prove that I knew a little bit about beer uh, beyond just reading books. I wanted to have a little something to show what I know. So before I moved to London, I went and got my Cicerone certified beer server uh, exam. And I passed that in May of 2015 and then moved to London in August and started working behind a bar. Uh, The bar here is called Mother Kelly's and it's sort of one of London's craft beer institutions. From there, I met this amazing group of women uh, called the Crafty Beer Girls, and they're all women who work in or are fans of drinking beer. And through them, I found out about a job opportunity at Duval. So then I started working at Duval Mortgat at their UK office. I initially started in a role more focused on production, and then an opportunity in the marketing world came up. So I then became the UK marketing manager for Duval Mortgat for three and a half years. And in that time, got my Cicerone certification, got my beer sommelier qualification, and started offering uh, sort of talks and tastings in the evening about beer styles and welcoming people into the world of beer. And I would do some of them with my Duval hat on, talking about the amazing Duval range of beers and not just the Duval family itself, but everything else included, like Deconic and Schuf and Leafman's. So there were so many great beers to talk about there. But I got to the point after three and a half years where I just thought, while I love the Duval family and it has such a special place in my heart, I want to talk about all beers, not just these beers from Duval. So that's what led me to then leave and go freelance, focusing on beer education. And that was in June 2019. And instead of really getting stuck right into freelance work, I actually decided, let me go get another qualification first. Uh-huh. <laughs> Went and got my own. Uh, and that I took in November 2019. Found out I passed that in January 2020. And in the process of all of this, while still working at Duval, I had been writing my book, as you said, which is called Beer, Taste for Evolution in 50 Styles. That then came out in March 2020. Sadly, my book launch had to be canceled as it was the week we went into lockdown here in the UK. So the pandemic sort of changed my plans. Uh, But it led me to launch this virtual book club that then turned into my virtual beer school. And now I spend my days in my spare room talking to my screen, connected to individuals around the world who want to learn more about beer. So I'm, I'm really loving, you know, it was a silver lining. I didn't expect for my career to take this direction, but everyone's had to make changes with the pandemic. And I'm really so pleased with the people that I can connect with and share my passion for beer with through, through the internet. So I'm loving what I'm doing with my virtual beer school. Well, and I know a lot of people who, um, you know, just made bread and, and I developed a bread starter that I, you know, still have back then. So um, I, feel, I felt pretty d- productive about that, but you kind of took it to a completely different level. Oh, sorry. I mean, the bread goal is uh, a really good one. So yes, congrats on keeping your starter going. Yes, it's a fermentation. <laughs> exactly. And it's all just developed so organically to get to this point. And I kind of have seen myself planning my life like three months at a time. My courses are run for 12 weeks. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to offer an- another one, that's what I focus in on. Then I decide if I'm doing it again. And that's really a-, a good way to keep myself sane, given that it's been really hard to plan anything in these very strange times. So there's a few things I want to uh, dive into real quick. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, I, you know, having worked for breweries myself, I, I love it. I love the people. I love the environment. Um, but I also felt a little bit, um, I'm going to use the word stunted, uh, where I can only talk about these beers that we have in our portfolio, but there's so many great beers out there. And, and, um, and, and so it, it really is nice to have that freedom to be able to talk about uh, different beers. And of course, when, when you were at Duval, you had a, a lot of different breweries under that umbrella that you could work with. But um, yeah. it, it is a little uncomfortable to talk about this other amazing beer that's kind of a direct competitor, right? Yeah, exactly. It was that exact feeling of learning everything I could about the different breweries that were part of the Duval family and really enjoying talking about them. But as you've said, just kind of getting to a point where you almost run out of runway. Like I know everything I, I, I know about these beers and that I can say about these beers, but there's so much more out there that I want to talk about and, and bring other people in to the world of beer through. And that's, you know, the reason that did lead me to leave. But pretty much every Duval brewery is mentioned at some point in the book uh, because they've all got these amazing stories to tell. And that also was one of the reasons I was so proud of working for Duval. Duval's history itself is fascinating. You know, the fact that it means devil and that it's this really 
strong devil of a beer. It was golden in color and packed such a punch with its ABV. But then, of course, Deconic is one of the original Belgian pale ales or the special Belge. And then we've got Schuf introducing the first ever Belgian IPA with Hublon Schuf. So those little stories were really fascinating to me and definitely key stories I wanted to tell in the book and inspirations behind the book as well. That's great. Um, and just one little housekeeping standpoint. We, we kind of glossed over this. I've, I've heard you discuss this in other podcasts, uh, but just for people who... Um, if this is the first time they're hearing about uh, Cicerones versus Beer Sommeliers, um, uh, my understanding is uh, Beer Sommeliers is something that is predominant in uh, Europe and Cicerone is something that's kind of taken over the world. Is, do I have that pretty much about the same? Yeah, that's typically how I explain it as well. So the Beer Sommelier is a qualification that's offered by the Beer Insider Academy and they're based here in the UK. So yes, it is quite uh, UK, Europe focused. Whereas the Cicerone program started in the U.S. and that's where my beer journey started. So I was familiar with them first and I went through the Cicerone program first. Then moving to the U.K., I really felt, okay, well, if everyone here has this qualification, I should probably get it too and make sure I'm on an equal playing field with them. But in the time that I've been here, the six years I've been here, the Cicerone program has really picked up its influence in the U.K. as well. So we have lots of students here going for, and I say students, I suppose, beer, uh, you know, knowledgeable beer industry individuals. I say students because I'm teaching many of them. Of in course, preparing. of course. Well, in, uh, but yes, in, very popular. Well, and you alluded to something that um, I, I feel strongly about, too, is um, when if you know a lot about beer and you're trying to work with someone in the beer world, there's... It, uh, it's kind of labor intensive to explain to them, you know, and a little and a little bit self aggrandizing as well to say, well, I know all this about beer. This is what I've done. You kind of vomit out your um, your uh, your resume in the beer world um, and it gets a little cumbersome. Um, but you alluded to just having these certifications kind of helps you kind of move through that part of the relationship pretty quickly so you can just get down to business, correct? Yeah. For me, the reason I you know, pitch my course is if people want to learn more about beer and show what they know, this is a way to do it. And not everyone feels it's necessary. I, I have an academic background. I have my master's in public health, of all things, before I came to the beer world. Initially, I thought I was going to pursue a PhD. So I do find value in uh, learning and, and being held to a standard and taking a test and showing what I know, as I've said. And like you said, it is actually kind of similar to what we're going to talk about with beer styles. You can communicate so much in those two words, certified Cicerone, advanced Cicerone, master Cicerone, as to what an individual's level of knowledge is within the beer industry. And then you can, you know, phrase the rest of your conversation based on having that understanding of what level of knowledge they have. Yeah. And I find it's a kind of a correlation. I don't know if there's a causal relationship there, but there's a correlation that I've spoken to a lot of people with advanced degrees who are very, very well educated, very intelligent. And um, and I've noticed that they all start, the, the more educated they get, the more they start leaning toward beer. I, I'm assuming that the same was with you. My thing in terms of interest and sort of what led me to beer had had a lot to do with this idea of me wanting to help explain science to people and sort of make science make sense. And I'd always found myself with one foot in both worlds, being really interested in science, but actually being quite good at talking to people about it, uh, particularly non-scientists. So I would attend these courses in university and kind of go home and talk to friends or family who weren't in the science world and be able to explain things about microbiology or virology or biochemistry, explaining what Splenda was made of and how they made it and how we can get the sweet taste from it, but it doesn't count as calorific. Those little things I could explain to people. And I loved it. I loved being in that world of talking science to the scientists and then being able to communicate it to non-scientists. So initially I did that about microbiology. That's what I studied at UCLA in undergrad. Then I went on to get my master's in public health, specifically focused on infectious disease and vaccinology, <laughs> relevant we are in the world now. But my focus there was on food safety. And that's actually what led me to the baby food company. I wanted to be able to talk to our quality assurance team about how our products are made and how we're keeping them safe in technical terms. But then I could say that to our customers, to the moms and dads who are buying the products and make them feel safe in buying our products in terms they would understand. So I've, I've just loved being that translator and helping to make science make sense. When friends in grad school introduced me to beer, I thought, 
oh, this is the next thing that I'm going to learn and, you know, become a master of myself and start explaining it to others in a way that hopefully will get them just as passionate about it as I am. And so it is a bit through academia, but also this sort of communications and translator role that then led me to say, well, if I do want to teach people about this stuff, I got to show what I know, get some certifications, allow them to believe in me. And then, you know, they can learn from me with confidence. And that's fair, especially, you know, in, in your background of trying to explain to parents, um, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the health and safety of the, of the baby food. You know, of course, uh, we're talking about beer, but, you know, we're going to talk about baby food now. But um, that, that, that's a big deal to, one, to show them that you know what you're talking about, and I can explain this to you in a, in a way that is not condescending, is not uh, over your head. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, I think that's fantastic that you took that skill that you have and applied it to, to beer, and I think we're all better for it. Um, but, you know, uh, and then another thing I kind of want to unpack a little bit, too, is, you know, so you got your advanced Cicerone in January of last year of 2020, um, mm-hmm. and you launched your book in March, which is a lamentable time. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, when, when everyone's just kind of like— you know, trying to reprioritize what, uh, their focus. Um, but you ended up, uh, maybe unwittingly, maybe wittingly, um, you, you kind of built a business out of that. Can you kind of unpack how your, uh, your business has formed since then? Yeah, it was definitely unwittingly, totally unexpected that this would come about in this way. Um, but yeah, really, I kind of got on it quite quickly in the sense that my book launch had to be canceled, but I did want to try and celebrate this accomplishment and, and what I had created and share it with people. So I started a virtual book club in April of 2020. And this was back in the day where I literally just created, created a social media post on Canva, included a Google Meet link and just put it out to the world and was like, if you want to click it, if you want to come and chat beer, come and chat beer. And now I think I keep those things private. I'm like, you got to request a Zoom link from me or a Google Meet link from me. I don't just put it out into the world anymore. Uh, But that was the early days. We were figuring everything out and people were trying to stay connected because the beer world is so social and so connected. And all of that just ended overnight. So I started this uh, weekly book club and we talked through a chapter a week. So that took us until the end of April. And I just kind of gave what I called the director's cut. So any stories that had to be cut out or little things I really wanted to highlight, places I'd visited and I wanted to bring them to life even more. And from that, at the end of those five weeks, people were like, oh, we don't want this to stop. So we want to keep meeting and chatting about beer. So uh, it turned into my summer lockdown beer school. We met every Thursday, and this continued from May until August. So for those additional four months, we were meeting every week, and we just crowdsourced topics. So anyone was joining us. The link was, again, available on freely on social media. And I, at one point, got up to over 200 subscribers. So we'd have about 40 to 50 attendees a week, but 200 people were getting invited. And we talked about everything from different types of fermentation to beer and food pairing to how to become a beer sommelier. And it was really wonderful, but in terms of my interest in education, I was realizing that everyone was coming in with a slightly different knowledge level, and I wanted to make sure everyone felt included. And so it's difficult then to figure out, okay, if we're doing a talk about fermentation, where do we begin? People wanted to hear about the unique approaches like spontaneous fermentation or open fermentation and how they differ, but we need to get everyone on the same page first. So I took a little bit of time off at the end of August and kind of figured out what was going to come next. And that's what then led me to launch Virtual Beer School, which is a 12-week program that prepares people for the Cicerone Certified Beer Server exam. And this was a way to really get everyone on the same page, take them through the syllabus one week at a time. I bring in stories from my book. We do tastings. And it really is this wonderful interactive online learning experience where People learn a bit from me, yes, but then we've got the Q&A and discussion that comes afterwards. And some people said that's what kept them coming back, having an opportunity to meet other beer lovers and connect with them in this strange virtual world we're a part of. So that has run three times now, Virtual Beer School Level 1, with 50 to 60 attendees live. And then I offer it uh, access to the audio if people would like to listen back as well if they can't join us live with the time zone difference or things like that. And then from the back of that, people said, oh, we want to go on to the next level. We want to keep learning. So now I've got a level two course as well that prepares people for the certified Cicerone. And I'm in the second running of that at the moment. So, yeah, it's been this incredible business and really incredible community of people who I have found. And it's really gone global. This current uh, virtual beer school level two course for the certified Cicerone, I've got people from the UK, France, Germany, the Netherlands, 
Ireland, Canada, the US, Brazil, and Australia dialing in to join us. That so is, I'm just that's blown fantastic. Away. That is fantastic. Um, but when you're doing the the um, the uh, the book club, um, at, well, actually, a better question would be: At what point did you start uh, realizing that hey, this could be a business, and I'm going to start charging and, and create the content? I mean, what at what point did you go from hey, I just want to build this community to now I'm going to build a business and start charging? It was mostly when people told me that I should, to be honest. <laughs> really? And I, and I still hear from people like, your price is way too low. You should be charging more for this. You give up so much of your time. And I want it to be accessible. And so it's something that, you know, I, I kind of think about the pricing for some of the courses from the Beer Insider Academy. And that includes your your full day course, your beer, and your exam. For me, I am just providing the education. If you want to bring beers, I will give you some recommendations, but I allow people to source whatever's best from them, whether that's from their local supermarket or their local brewery. Here are the styles we're going to taste this week. Bring whatever you prefer. And they still need to separately pay for the exam. So I do want to be mindful that I want it to bring people in. I don't want it to be too expensive. Um, and then if people you know, can't afford to join us live or if they, you know, the timing doesn't allow, there's that listen back option that's even more affordable. So currently the course is 75 pounds for the 12 weeks, uh, 30 pounds if you want to do the listen back option. I can quickly Google what that is in dollars for your audience. I'm terrible with the translations, but we can find out. Well, I, I think the uh, last time I checked, I want to say the pound is about a dollar twenty. I think, something like that. Yeah. It's around $100 for the 12-week course. So that's, you know, meeting every week for an hour and a half, so 18 hours in total of lessons, and then also access to videos and other materials and me for any questions you might have, just because I love chatting beer, and then around $40 for the listen back option. Which, so I hope, which honestly, yeah, that that is a fantastic price to go through the school so that you can pass your Cicerone level and, and, and whatever that is, but to get that knowledge and to kind of get a really good head start into a similar career that, that you have built. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is why a lot of people want to do it as well. They're interested in becoming beer educators themselves. And so I'm always happy to help pass on that knowledge too. And the level two course is, is twice the price. It's 150 pounds. So that's closer to $200. Um, for that one, we've got homework that we do as well. And that is so much more about, uh, you know, I deliver the lessons and make sure everyone has the content they need based on the syllabus. But it really is just giving people structure, giving people a study group. I found those things to be super helpful because everything for Cicerone is self-study. And it can be hard to figure out what books you read, uh, where you get the right answers, uh, you know, really just carving out the time to get through that big, chunky syllabus and make sure you know everything to the right level of detail. So that's what we do together in VBS Level 2. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. It's so unexpected to have built this business. And I'm, I'm interested to see as we come out of lockdown, as the world returns to whatever this new normal looks like, how many people are still interested in virtual learning. But given the fact that I have so much interest from around the world, I do see it continuing. I was, you know, people have asked me, would I move to in-person courses in London? But not very many of my participants are in London. So I think keeping up that virtual element is going to be really important. And of course, yeah, keeping accessible and affordable as well is important to me too. So if you were to look into a crystal ball, where do you see this going in the next five years? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Oh my goodness. I don't even know where it's going in the next five months, let alone the next <laughs> So I'm not so, you, so are you just kind of along for the ride at this point? Yeah, I just feel like so many things are uncertain with COVID uh, that it's very hard to make decisions, you know, very too far, too far ahead in that crystal ball, as you've said. Um, but I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing and I'm so thrilled at the community that I've created. And I would also like to figure out ways to keep those people who have passed their level two 
part of that community as well. I'm not quite ready to create a course for advanced Cicerone yet. <laughs> I'm still, I think, reeling, you know, recovering from from taking it myself and the amount of effort that went into it, which I'm sure you you feel as well from taking yours recently. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I took the ridden and now I, and then there's so much time has passed. I mean, by the time I can even, because of COVID, all the, uh, the uh, tasting exams were shut down and you, you lose so much momentum. It's almost like, I, I feel like I'm almost going to have to start over just to pre- prepare for that. Uh, mm. On the flip side, I thought it was an absolute gift to be able to separate out the written test from the tasting test so that I could focus, um, strategically focus. And like you were talking about, these are intimidating tests. Uh, Certified Cicerone was an intimidating test and advanced was even more so. Um, uh, I remember getting myself like psyched up that morning before the test, like I was going into a championship game um, and just getting all that, uh, that, everything going just because it was such a big deal to me. Yeah. But, but it was nice to be able to focus and, and, and be more strategic about it going through the, the, um, the uh, syllabus. But, um, but I didn't have your uh, school at the time, or at least I wasn't aware of it at the time. So shame on me. Um, so it didn't exist then. Don't worry. Only for the level one at that time. Okay, but but in, but that's where uh, I did ask people about. It. Well, is you know where can I go to really prep well for the advanced Cicerone? They're like, yeah, there's not that many people taking advanced, so there's not that much you know incentive to build a program. But um, I think there's a lot more people ready for the next levels. Yeah, and that's definitely something I want to sort of be mindful of. I didn't expect there to be this much interest in the level two prep course. And I think it is something that if people like to learn together, if they're used to that sort of classroom learning, there's nothing offered like that for Cicerone because it has been so focused on self-study. So this is just a bunch of individuals self-studying at the same time in yeah. the same Zoom. So and, yeah, it's been nice to create that. Well, and, and I've I've encountered a, a couple different uh, prep programs. Uh, of course, one is through syllabus itself, but uh, you have to get yourself wherever they're holding that class. Another one I, um, I actually took to prep for this uh, certified Cicerone, and it wasn't particularly good. It, it um, I, I feel like I wasted money on that program. And um, uh-huh. and so it, it, anyway, yeah, so it's nice that there's something out there to really help out. Um, have you taken the master test? Or are you prepping for the master test? No, it's not on my radar just yet. I initially did have the goal before I took the advanced, and the advanced was very difficult. And I just thought, you know what? Part of the thinking was I had just gone freelance, which was in June 2019. And then from the August to the November till I took the exam, I literally just stayed holed up in my apartment studying. So I was pretty ready for lockdown, to be honest. I've been doing that already. That nice. Um, but I committed so much because I just thought, I am going to pass this exam. I don't want to take this again. So I really committed three months to my studies for the advanced exam. And I did pass, thank goodness. And I found out my results the day that my advanced copy of the book arrived. That was January 10th, 2020. That was that was a wonderful day uh, to, get to get that good news and see the book in real life for the first time. And um, I just thought, you know, I want to work on developing my career and go freelance and actually do some work as opposed to just be freelance and be sat home studying. So it's not on my list of things to do at the moment, but uh, it's, you know, I'll never say never. We'll see if someday I decide to take on the challenge. Right. Yeah. Never say never. I, I struggle with the ROI for getting um, to that level. Um, yes. That uh, sort of mindful of as well well that and just the the sheer amount of cost study sacrifice time away from family friends work whatever it is it's it it, it's a thing to be reckoned with but um but i'm gonna you know the question that comes out of this little conversation is um what what drove you to go for the the greater education in the beer biz i mean is it just simply so that you didn't have to have that um laborious conversation before you started talking to someone about beer I think so. I mean, I think sadly as well, being a woman in the industry, it instead of having people potentially question what I know, when I can show that I've fell to the same standard as, you know, any man or any woman in the industry has gone for, mm-hmm. it just gives me that level of credibility for people to believe that I know what I'm on about. And and like you said, then it does take away that potential conversation or that doubt. It's just I've been held to the standard. Here's what I know. Let's have a chat. You know, what do you want to talk about? And I think for me, it's frustrating because I do feel that there are some men in the industry who 
don't have the same certifications and they get believed automatically, you know, that they know what they're on about, which is something that, uh, you know, sometimes I do question, is it is it the right thing to do to be encouraging people to get these sorts of certifications? Um, but for me, I really feel that it has helped me so much with my confidence, allows people to believe in me as well, and just shows that I'm credible and that I know what I'm on about from having taken that test. Yeah, I, I, I be, being a male myself, there is a in in, in male cu- culture. I have experienced there's the "Don't worry, bro, we'll figure this out" type of mentality, and and that has served mankind um, to some degree of success. Uh, and my experience with women and my wife and whatever, um, and I forgive me, I don't want to make a generality, but my experience with women is there's like you you know the one keep the ducks in the row and you kind of make everything, everything is, is nice and tight just from, you know, the women I've experienced and, and, uh, and there's a difference of mentality and it, it's lamentable that, um, that, uh, you know, guys will just kind of wing it and just kind of, you know, figure it out and, and just kind of have that uh, cavalier bravado about, you know, it, it's not that big a deal and, and it makes things a little bit more challenging. Um, I, I, have you experienced a similar dynamic? Is, is that why you you wanted to make sure you had your uh, education dialed in just to avoid all that? I think it's interesting. I mean, it it wasn't necessarily that I went for the certifications so that I wouldn't have to have those conversations. I just like academia. I'm a good test taker. I kind of knew this is what I wanted to do okay. to show my level of knowledge about beer and to just to prove to others that I know what I know. Um, so it wasn't motivated by the fact that, you know, I felt perhaps downtrodden as a woman in the industry or anything like that. I'm just conscious that there are those thoughts out there. Um, but for me, I just kind of knew I was coming into beer from a different background. You know, I had a science background, but I was in the baby food industry. So to make that transition to beer, I just wanted to have that certified beer server certificate to say, yep, she knows something about beer. You can hire her to be behind a bar and talk to customers about this product. She's knowledgeable about it. And then from there, I just kind of got bitten by this bug where I was like, oh, well, if there's more to learn and I like taking tests, then sure, I'm going to learn it. I'm going to take the test and see if I can pass it and see if I can gain that level, level of knowledge. So now it is nice that, you know, for those in the industry who do know what an advanced Cicerone is, when I can say I have that certification, then yeah, people know what level of knowledge I have and sort of the the rigorous study and examinations I've put myself through. But it was also just this sort of interest in being a bit geeky about beer and wanting to learn everything I could about it. But if there's a way to prove my level of knowledge, I'll go for it. Great. Um, you know, and since we're on the uh, the subject of of women in the industry, um, if if I can have your blessing to ask you about this, um, so uh, in in your podcast, Beer with Nat, um, I think I read that you you specifically spotlight women in the industry, and and there's been a, a, a complete and utter upwelling and upheaval of of things going on in in the service and beer industry, and well, frankly, a lot of different industries, to be honest, um, uh, and. It long overdue, and I've spent a lot of time in the restaurant industry where where uh, many different bad behaviors were tolerated. Um, they, they were more than tolerated. It was that's just where bad behaviors kind of went to uh, make a living. It seems sometimes. Do you have anything that you'd like to say to women who are now trying to enter the beer industry or the beer world? Well, I think for me, the reason I started my podcast, which I started back in October 2018, I believe it was, I started it because I was a woman in beer. And through the Crafty Beer Girls, the organization I mentioned earlier, which is this amazing group of women, mostly UK-based, but we'd meet up in person in London, who either worked in beer or were fans of beer, I I just kind of thought, oh, wow, I know all these women in beer. You know, this is great. And and people think from the outside, beer is for men, and there aren't that many women working in the industry. There are plenty of us here. It's just that our stories weren't really being told or being recognized. And so then the reason I created the podcast was to be able to give women a platform and shine a spotlight on them to say, you work in beer, you love what you do. Tell us your story. What brought you here? What's the work that you do? What did you do beforehand? So we can have that bit of a career focus for other people who say, oh, well, I used to work in theater and now I want to work in the beer world. What transferable skills can I bring across? Bring across. And so I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to just shine a spotlight on other women in beer in all different kinds of roles. 
there's this beer writer here in the UK, Melissa Cole, and she always says, if you can't see, you can't be. And so that's really been my thinking behind the podcast. Just make these women more visible and make it apparent to people that not only do women work in beer and that there are a lot of us here doing loads of great work for the industry, that also women drink beer more generally. You know, it's not just for men. Uh, and I think by helping to shine a spotlight on those two things, that we work here, that we love drinking beer, that that can hopefully help to change minds and hearts and say, you know, we have a place in this industry. Beer is for everyone. And I kind of thought, you know, with all of this sort of reckoning that's going on with women in beer at the moment, is there something different I should be doing? Is there something more I should be doing? But I think just really continuing to shine a spotlight on women and helping to share their stories is a really important part of this to say, here's what we do. Here's why we love it. And here's why we deserve to be here, just like anyone else. That's a that's a, a nice little tagline. I'm going to uh, highlight that, actually. Um, um I, a few years ago, uh, granted before COVID, um, I was at a beer competition and had a very interesting conversation with a female brewer for, uh, from Montana. Um, and, and and the short version of that story was um, it wasn't necessarily specific to gender, but there are definite personality types in any business all around the world that are louder and, and more forceful than others who seem to dominate the conversation and suck up most of the air in the room so that anyone else who has an uh, an actual veritable uh, contribution, um, e- even though it's different, uh, it really doesn't have much room on that table because of, of these personality types. Um, and, and it also seems in that conversation kind of swayed to, well, that's typically, uh, to overly generalize and summarize that that's where men have kind of dominated that conversation and, and all that air in the room so that, uh, women in the beer industry just didn't have as much voice. There wasn't as much room to get the voice out. Um, and and I've personally, you know, I, I'm six foot five. Uh, I'm I'm bald. I'm male. I'm white. Um, you know, I, I've also experienced, you know, those people with who have more force and a louder voice, who just really don't leave enough room for for all voices to be heard. Um, mm. Is that is that a fair summation of the experience that you've encountered? I think it's difficult because a lot of people do ask, you know, as a woman in beer, have you come up against anything negative? And I think there have been a few comments here and there, but, but mostly when I look at my experience in beer, I just think, you know, I'm here. I know what I'm on about. I'm confident in my level of knowledge and in sharing that with other people. This is, you know, a random aside, but in my high school yearbook, I was named most driven. Did I have any idea to do? No, but I found my thing. I love beer. I want to spread my love and passion for beer with others, with anyone willing to listen, really. And I kind of haven't let anything get in the way of that. So I do find that I'm quite headstrong. I'm quite confident in what I'm doing. But I know that there are a lot of other women that don't feel that way. And so that's where I see myself in playing this role to help lift other women up and help give them a spotlight and help to build their confidence as well. And like you said, if there are situations where people's voices aren't being heard, it's about then many women speaking together so that our collective voice gets louder and that people do listen to us. And so I think there is a lot of sticking together of women in the beer industry until we get to the point that there is that sense of equality and that we don't have to say, you know, I have X, Y, Z qualifications and I deserve to be here. Uh, We do need to stick together to help raise our collective voices. And that's definitely what we're seeing now. Oh, and I I would definitely cheers to that. Um, And I, I don't think this experience, this conversation you and I are having right now has to be about gender. It doesn't have to be about race. It doesn't have to be about orientation. Um, I, I think we could expand that out to just general experience. Uh, like I said, I described myself and, you know, if if I walked into a bar, I, I'm going to look different than, than uh, well, I, I'm not going to say that. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm bald. I'm tall. I'm, I'm you know, I'm you know, I, I have my presence, but there are times when my voice hasn't been heard. And so, you know, I started a podcast and I started writing and, 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 uh, that has certainly helped. So I, I think, um, kudos to you f- to giving, for giving a voice to women in the beer industry, um, and highlighting that, um, hopefully, uh, 
uh, by taking your lead or, or showing the way that this is a way that you can stand taller, you can speak louder, you can break through those uh, voices that are dominating, those, those personalities that are sucking the air out of the room, because um, you have the value, you have the knowledge, you have the ability. It's, it's unfortunately, you have to go grab it. Yeah. And I have had people say to me with the courses as well, you know, women have signed up because they appreciate the fact that it's a woman teaching them and that they can then sort of see themselves. And because beer has been, you know, dominated by white men for so long, that then woman or a person of color, or as you've said, people of different orientations in the industry, in prominent positions, again, it's that if you can't see, you can't be. If we can be there and show people that it's possible, then they are keen to engage with us and, and follow the paths that we're starting to carve for others who are like us. So I think it has been really helpful. I didn't really realize that, you know, more women were coming to the course because it was led by a woman. But I'm I'm pleased that there's that level of confidence to be able to then be, you know, to to be a part of, of what we're doing and to feel that they have just as much of a right to be there in the beer industry, getting ahead in the beer industry as anyone else. Thank you for saying that more eloquently than I did. I, um, uh, the point I was trying to drive home and, and I failed miserably was that um, when someone looks at me, I'm not the person who's going to represent them because I'm that white male. I'm the, um, but you know, people need to see the, uh, the those who they identify with, and and um, and so I, I would love to be that guide. I would love to be that person that empowers everyone. I don't care who you are, everyone to do this. That's why I started this podcast. Um, but uh, I, I may not be the leader for everyone. I may not be the person to show the guide for everyone. So that's where it, it's perfect that, that, you know, you and other women who have podcasts and other classes and other things out there, because everyone has that person they can really jive with, so to speak. So that that was the uh, the point I was hoping to make, but thank you for helping me land my plane. <laughs> no problem at all. And and you're doing the exact same thing with your podcast. Anyone who has a platform, it's important that they think about how they're using it and who. They are. And you know, you're mindful of having diverse guests. Then you're doing your part to help shine a spotlight on what the industry can look like if we are mindful of these things and giving feeling that they're welcome. Well, and on that note, uh, uh, I, I really, uh, I've mentioned this before, but there are such a wide uh, and vast diversity of styles, um, and that should, that should be our uh, poster child for what our, our beer profession should look like, just absolute diversity. We're, you know, can you imagine drinking nothing but Kolsch on a daily basis because nothing else exists? That would, that, would, that would not be the worst thing in the world, but it could be so much more interesting. And so... Let's talk a little bit about beer styles. I like that transition. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there are over different styles of beer, so there has to be a beer style out there for you. And that's really my way to just get people thinking differently about beer. It's not all fizzy yellow lager. There is so much more out there. Well, and, and the thing that I really want to dive into is, you know, we could talk about how is Kolsch different from cream ale and how is that different from a blonde ale? How is that different from a Munich Hellas? Because they're, they're all going to kind of sit in the same pocket, but you really go behind the stories to truly understand, you know, why Munich Dunkel is malty and not uh, bitter and hoppy um, because of water profiles. And that's very similar to uh, Portland, uh, Portland, uh, London Browns. Um, tell me about why going into the styles and understanding the history of a region and how that affected the style. How, why is that important for people to know? Yeah, I think for me, I discovered so many of these stories when I was studying for my certified Cicerone. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing my homework, reading from Tasting Beer, reading from the Brewmaster's Table, reading from the BJCP style guidelines. And I was learning all these fascinating nuggets about the history of the styles, but they were always buried at the bottom of the style guideline, uh, which makes sense if you're thinking about using those guidelines for judging. At the time, you don't need to know the history. You really just need to know what flavors am I looking for? Is it made with the right ingredients? Has it hit the right ABV, etc.? But for me to then be able to remember why a certain beer style tastes the way it does, it was the story behind it that really stuck in my brain. And that really then helped me to connect its sense of place, the flavors that we should be finding, why the brewers were using the certain ingredients that they did. So I just thought, well, I want to write about these stories in a way that just makes them a bit easier for people to find and tie together. And that was really the inspiration behind the book. 
So for me, it's sort of a taster's guide through the history of beer. And the way it's done is by looking through the lens of beer's four main ingredients. So we look at malt and how that has changed over the years, all really focused from the industrialized era on. So from the Industrial Revolution, what advancements were brought about to the world of brewing? So we start with malt and how that's changed. Then we look at water and how our understanding of water and water chemistry has influenced the beer styles that were brewed in certain places. Then we look at hops and how hops have changed and really our use initially for bittering. Now we bring them in for aroma and flavor and how hops from around the world bring different flavors to our beers. And then finally, we look at yeast and how, you know, our understanding of yeast was non-existent when we first started brewing and how we have all these different styles, whether they sit within the ale family, the lager family or the mixed fermentation family. So it's this, as I said, stepping stone through the history of beer. But each story is no longer than three pages. So you can kind of pick up the book, put it down. There's a beer to taste that brings each of the different styles to life. So you do then start to link up the flavors with the stories so that hopefully then the ingredients and the flavors that you're expecting make sense with when it evolved, what style inspired it, what style came after it. So it's thinking about links between things like the Czech Pilsner, which came first, the world's first golden colored lager, and how that inspired their neighbors in Germany to make the German pills and what the differences are between those beers. We can discover the links between something like an English barley wine or a wee heavy and Duvel, a Belgian golden strong ale. Mm -hmm. On the face of it, those styles have nothing to do with each other. But Duvel used to be a dark strong ale. It wasn't golden until the 1970s. And that darker version was inspired by dark, strong beers from England and from Scotland, like the barley wine and the wee heavy. So it's about making these connections that you didn't necessarily know existed. And that then makes all of the styles make sense and where they fit next to each other. So you can then understand what flavors they should have, what strength they should be, etc. So for me, it just really helped clarify things and, and put them in a timeline in my mind, essentially. And so that's really what the book is. That timeline then brought to life in book form with beautiful illustrations from an illustrator named Sarah Greeno. I just love how the book looks. And I'm, I'm really pleased with it. the fact that it exists and how well it's done. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Well, and I, uh, the thing I love, especially for people who are trying to educate themselves in beer, the knowledge is there, um, but it's written in a way where, you know, uh, I'm going to say lay people or uh, beer enthusiasts can enjoy it. it it's a fun read. Um, but I found, you know, I, I tried to wrap my head around the stories behind the styles as well. Um, uh, you just wrote the book before I got a chance to it. So kudos to you again. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but the the thing I find is if I'm trying to like look at the BJCP styles and memorize the difference between a Kolsch and a cream ale, then and right before I take the test, then that that's just pure memorization and and maybe I'll get the answer right, maybe I won't, but I may not remember it after the test. When I mm-hmm. know the stories, when I know the histories, when I know um, the the uh, overall um, context around that beer style, then I don't have to memorize anything. I know the story. It, it was like wa- watching a movie and, and and it was way more interesting. Exactly. You kind of figure out, ah, this style inspired this style, which connects to this style. And they differ because one's darker in color or one's got a different type of hops or the IBU is different here. Yeah. And it just slots things into their natural place. Because initially when you think for certified beer server, you need to learn 40 beer styles. A lot of people think, oh my goodness, how the heck am I going to take in all this information? But they all relate to each other. And I think once you figure out how to place them in your brain and learn the different stories, it starts to make a lot more sense. It's not about memorization, as you've said. Well, in taking the uh, advanced Cicerone written test, um, I I was... it's a very intimidating thing where they just give you some, uh, basically some uh, beer style stats uh, and very, very uh, limited information about the beer. And they basically ask you, okay, what beer do you think this is? But when here's the ABV, here's the uh, IBUs, here's the color, uh, go. And you're thinking, holy hell, how does anyone uh, remember this stuff? But like I said, going, or like you said, going into the stories and, and, and the different and the common ancestry between the wee heavy and the barley wine and Duval. I, I I've never heard that story before, um, but to be able to just break it down like you're trying to describe an old friend. So it, it's one thing to say uh, ABV, IBUs, and SRM, but if I were to say five um, ten blonde laughs all the time, uh, then you might think, oh, that's my friend Tom or or Jane or something like that. It, it's easier to th- think of things in that context for me. 
Yeah, you start taking those numbers, figuring out what they translate to in terms of more qualitative descriptors. So if we've got an SRM of three to six, okay, I'm thinking we're, you know, in a sort of pale gold to deep gold. And then from there, I can figure out, all right, what's the ABV range? And then what are you telling me about the IBU? So what level of bitterness am I expecting? We can start putting those pieces of the puzzle together and then figure out, okay, where, what style does that then interpret to, as you've said, based on knowing that little bit more about the fact that, you know, most beers in the UK are relatively low in IBU, especially compared to the ones in America, which tend to be significantly higher. So having those bits of background knowledge and knowing the possibilities for the different styles based on their stories and how they relate to one another country to country is really helpful as well. Well, um, and how do you explain, you know, what exactly is a beer style and why do we need beer styles? How do you ex- uh, answer that question for people who ask you that? Yeah, I think this is interesting because I know that, you know, for every one person that says, I love beer styles, they're super helpful. There's another person that says, oh, what's the point? You know, can't we just let people brew what they want to brew? And I think, uh, as we were talking about earlier, the fact that the words certified Cicerone, advanced Cicerone, master Cicerone mean something to people within the beer world as to the level of knowledge that you can provide, the uh, rigorous examination you've gone through, the level of study that you've put yourself through. Saying something like, American Amber Ale compared to Best Bitter, those words are simple, but they mean something to people in the beer world to let you know what sorts of flavors you're going to find. And it does take a little while to familiarize yourself with those things, uh, but I find them just a really helpful language of beer that communicates so much in just a few words to then help set expectations for the drinker as to what they can expect in the glass in front of them. Now, I know that some people don't enjoy them or they find that they're interpreted a bit too rigorously. But, you know, to have to bend the rules, we got to know what the rules are. So I think it is helpful to have these definitions or these guidelines in place to say, you know, this is what we would expect from an IPA. Uh, Normally, it's going to be pretty clear in terms of clarity, may have a slight haze from dry hopping for then someone to create the New England IPA, which we can't see through at all. And so they pushed against what was expected of the style and created a whole new style in the process. So just because there are beer styles doesn't mean there can't be any more. Uh, and I do think that we need to remind people that there is always room for exploration and experimentation. And that's what's so fun about beer. The fact that we had American IPA as a style, and now we've got all these different substyles: the Belgian, the black IPA, the white IPA, the New England IPA, that they're, they're just helpful guidelines that then allow people to know what they should expect from the beer that's in front of them. That said, though, I do personally find some challenges with the different interpretations. If I just see a beer labeled an IPA today, I don't really know what to expect. Is it going to be along the lines of a more traditional American IPA, some more of that West Coast IPA, pretty clear, that sticky, resinous, piney character coming from the hops, and that touch of crystal or caramel malt, that more toasty, bready malt flavor? Or is it going to be super hazy, really fruit forward from the New World hops it contains and, you know, have that pillowy soft mouthfeel from some added oats or wheat? I really don't know until it gets into my glass. So in that case, I would like brewers to maybe provide a little bit more information on their interpretation of what an IPA is, but not everyone's going to go to that level of detail. But for me, I just find them really helpful in explaining what flavors people are going to find. Because then it allows you to say, you know, especially to those new to beer, what flavors do you like? Okay, well, if you're normally, uh, you know... A uh, gin drinker, maybe you might like something that has a slightly more herbal flavor. I'm going to recommend a Belgian wit beer for you because it's brewed with these two added herbs and spices. So let's start there. And then from there, you can kind of figure out what, what way to guide people. But knowing the flavors and knowing the styles connected to those flavors, it is a helpful language of beer that I think we don't need to stick to too prescriptively, but I find it really, really helpful in allowing people to find their favorites and discover more about beer. You know, and I, I love that because it is, it's really about uh, better communication, about being specific. Uh, you know, if you and I were to meet up to discuss um, uh, a, a brewery that you and I were going to start and we went out to an Italian restaurant, I might say, hey, what kind of Italian food do you like? Or, or what do you like to eat? I like to eat Italian food. Well, tell me more. Um, do you like... Uh, red sauce do you like pesto sauce do you like carbonara do you like prosciutto do you like uh, chopino it, it it's we can have a deeper discussion just by drilling down and being very very specific about what you want to eat um and and imagine sitting at that same restaurant and trying to order it's like you know i'll i'll, I'll take you know 
I'll, I'll take anything that has red sauce in it. It's like, no, the waiter <laughs> needs to, the waiter needs to write something down specific. So it, it really is just having that communication level with the styles. Um, but it does take a little bit of time to learn, but your book makes it a little bit easier. Um, the, tell us a little bit about the difference between um, the BJCP, uh, which is uh, styles developed for home brewers and home brewing competitions, the Brewers Association styles, which is more a professional competition. And um, are you are you aware of any other guidelines uh, coming out of Europe or anywhere else? Yeah, so there is another organization, the European Beer Consumers Union, and they have developed their own set of style guidelines as well. I think in terms of maybe knowing which one to go with, for me, my focus has always been on BJCP because that's what the Cicerone program uses for their exams. But it has been helpful to kind of look at some of the Brewers Association style guidelines for comparison. The interesting thing from my perspective and uh, as a beer educator and kind of a bit of a geek on beer history, as I've written a book about it, uh, has to do more with the timings of of when these uh, style guidelines are updated and the new styles that we then see appearing. We can kind of track trends that way. So the BJCP style guidelines, as you've said, were initially developed for home brewers, and they're only updated, say, once every eight years or so. The last edition came out in 2015. Prior to that, it was 2008. So perhaps we could be expecting a new edition in the next few years. So we don't see changes too often there, which makes it much easier to study from, knowing that they have stayed consistent for so long. The Brewers Association, as they're uh, creating their style guidelines for their competitions, which are professionally focused, as you've said, so the uh, Great American Beer Festival and the World Beer Cup, they update their style guidelines every year. So it's a really nice way to then track the trends and see when double IPA was first recognized, which I believe was in 2002 or 2003, and then when New England IPA was first recognized, which was in 2018, even though the style had been brewed since 2003. So seeing these little things allows us to see the shifts that are happening and whenever, you know, American brewed sour beers first entered the competition. So for many years, sours were just a thing that were was brewed in Belgium, and then American brewers decided to try their hand at it. So it's really fun to see when different styles have evolved uh, and and really how many different entrants there are, the number of entrants to each of these different categories. And the European Beer Consumers Union, uh, their style guidelines just came out either earlier this year or last year. And I think it is a way to be a little bit more mindful of some of the different European styles as well that could perhaps be lumped together, particularly with the Czech beer styles when it comes to BJCP. Uh, The Czech beer styles, we've just got Czech pale uh, lager, Czech premium pale lager, Czech Amber and Czech Dark. And that's not really how the Czechs see their different beer styles being categorized. They have more to do with strength and the different Play-Doh bands, the degrees Play-Doh, uh, and then also the color as well. So I think it's being mindful of ways that other countries perhaps organize their styles would be a nice thing to fold in. So it's good that there are all these different approaches. It shows that we don't need to be too rigid with whatever approach that we're using. But for me, it really is about having that common language of beer that can help set expectations for the flavors people will find and really hopefully help welcome more people into beer once they find their favorite. Uh yeah, that, that kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the BJCP. Of course, I, you know, I use that because of Cicerone. I use that because it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more specific. It goes a little bit deeper than the BA, um, especially when I'm judging, I can get a little bit more um, background, generally speaking. But um, but it does break out like uh, Flanders Brown and Flanders Red, for example. But I, I've heard that uh, in that region of Belgium that it, it to, to them, it's the same beer. Uh, there's just a slight, yeah, slightly, slightly different process. and. Um, yeah, it's called a red brown there. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little confusing that they're seeing as two totally different styles. Yeah, um, and so it's kind of it. It's good to kind of see how other people look at it. Um, but if for anyone who works in the beer business, whether uh, he's a waiter, she's a bartender, he works for a distributor, she runs a brewery, um, why is it so important for people to know and understand the beer styles? I really think it is just this idea of being able to communicate the flavors that people can expect in such a short number of words. And 
it is slightly challenging in that not every customer that's going to come to you is going to understand exactly the difference between an American pale ale and an American amber ale. But it is about then understanding, well, the amber is going to have those crystal or caramel malts in there. It's going to be a little bit sweeter, less focused on the bitterness. So if you talk to your customer and they say, oh, I would like something kind of with the flavors of a pale ale, but it's a little too bitter for me, what do you recommend? Then right away they know, ah, I've got something for this person. I'm going to go with the American amber ale because it's pretty similar in terms of hop character and color, but it's got that little bit more sweetness to it in the balance overall. So it's not necessarily that they will specifically be saying them to the consumers. They could hopefully share that knowledge with the consumer once they've served it and say, this is what you like. You like an American Ambriel. This is what you can look out for at the next brewery you go to. But it just kind of gives them that bank of options to choose from where they know what flavors tie in with what styles and maybe even can share the history as well to give their customers a nice little story to know about the origins of the beer, that sort of thing. That's fantastic. Um, well, for the sake of time, Nat, because um, uh, I know you are approaching happy hour in England, um, uh, we're going to go to our final round of uh, not completely rapid fire questions. You could take as long as you want because you're the you're the guest. But um, uh, but uh, but you know um, the, the the final round. You, you make it as long or as short as you want it to be. But um, <laughs> the first one is uh, if you could be the queen of the beer world for a day, what's the first thing you would change? I would really like for everyone to know what beer is made from. And I know it's a bit silly, but I start all my tastings this way. Everyone knows that wine comes from grapes and cider comes from apples, but so few people know what beer comes from. And I think if we let people know what beer comes from, we've got our malted barley, we've got our hops, we've got our water, we've got our yeast. Once they understand those ingredients and the flavors that they can contribute, the whole world of beer opens up in a totally different way. And it becomes so much easier to find the flavors you like, know what styles you like. So I think just giving people a bit of knowledge of what beer is made from, if that was implanted in everybody's brains, I would absolutely love that. Well, Your Highness, do you know anyone uh, or where people could go to learn this stuff? <laughs> well, I've got some great resources for you. Uh, well, you want to make these We'll we'll save that we'll save that we'll save that for the end and I'm going to put that in the show notes too but that was that was that was kind of a perfect thing, um, uh, great promotion. Um, uh, if uh, so, today uh, uh, I'm sorry. Tomorrow, you and I are going to get onto a SpaceX rocket, head towards Mars, and set up a brewery there. But today is our last day on Earth until we do that. What's going to be your last meal and your last beer? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm not the biggest fan of a uh, beer and food pairing. Um, really? I w yeah. I, I find it too. Uh, it's, it's like not concrete enough. You know, there's so much variability. Uh, is, I like when there's a writing in science. And so the, yeah, you're the scientist. I'm the artist. So uh, I, I can, yeah, uh, I like it so much. Um, so Normally, my go-to beer is always Saison DuPont, and it's funny because then people always make the joke that like Saison goes with anything with beer and food pairing, um, but I also like sweet things way more than I like food, so I would probably go with like a tiramisu, and I have had, I love Cigar City Maduro, the brown ale, mm. but they had, I think it's called the Cubano, they had a version that had coffee in it, and it was amazing, so oh, I would wow. pair the tiramisu with that Cigar City coffee Maduro. And then we could jet off to Mars. Perfect. And then we can jet off to Mars. Um, and then and then you can get it all into your sciencey stuff, and I'll and I'll deal with the food pairings in Mars because I'm sure it's pretty simple there: potatoes and whatever we make. Um, uh, let's see. So you have uh, quite an abundant history with in the beer world already, um, but with all of your experiences kind of summed together, why does good beer matter? I mean, I know that's your tagline, so I will tie it up with my tagline, which is, I really do believe that beer is simply too delicious to remain undiscovered. And I think just there is so much good beer out there that if we can give people a little bit of knowledge that enables them to start that journey of discovery and continue that journey of discovery, they will continue it for the rest of their lives. That's fantastic. I, I love taglines. Um, so the next question is, how can listeners connect with you, learn more? Of course, um, please go buy the book. Uh, I've uh, It's Beer, Taste the Evolution in 50 Styles. Um, I am almost done with it, I have to admit, um, but it, it's fantastic. But where can they find the book and where can they connect with your beer school and everything else? Thank you very much for doing the book promo for me. 
Um, you can keep up with me on beerwithnat.com or at beerwithnat on all social platforms. Uh, and then I've also got a website where if you don't necessarily want to keep up with me, but you just want to go straight to learning about beer, that's discovering.beer. And so that's got everything you need to learn about what beer is made from, how we taste it, a little bit on the brewing process as well. And I'm also going to add some keeping and serving materials on there. So basically it can be your one-stop shop to learn more about everything for the certified beer server. I, it, with my research, I did not dis- discover discovering.beer. So I will look that up, but it will end up in the show notes. Um, and lastly, Nat, do you have a call to action or any final words of wisdom for anyone listening? Oh my goodness, do I? I'm not sure. I would just say, yeah, beer is so wonderful. There's so much to discover. So I hope that everyone, well, okay, I'll be cheesy and I'll do the drink responsibly line wearing my public health hat. Uh, so drink responsibly, but really there's so much to discover. I just hope everyone will will find a beer that, that they love and share their love of beer with others as well. Wonderful. I love it. Thank you so much. And Nat, thank you so much for taking your time coming, uh, you know, cutting your, uh, your uh, book tour short to come onto the Good Beer Matters podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, Only. I, I, I had a wonderful conversation with you. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Uh, maybe after the second book, right? Yeah, there we go. I'll work on the next one just for you. Thank wonderful. you so much. For- it's so nice to chat. When it comes to beer education, beer styles are a primary topic, but some regard the beer styles as rules that shouldn't be broken. In reality, styles are there to help us clearly communicate as we explore the past and the future of the known beer universe. Thanks to Nat Watson for taking us along that journey. In the next episode, we visit with the man who got us all homebrewing to learn why you should homebrew too. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.